Genesis 29, verse 31 through 24, chapter 30. It says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, this, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Rachel saw, or when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. When Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lay with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. And when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again. And she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, May the Lord add to me another son. The grass withers and the flowers fade.
All right. Well, if you're not there already, turn to uh, that portion of Genesis, Genesis chapter 29. And I'll pray for us as we move in that direction. Father in heaven, thank you for um, your wonderful works um, that are seen through uh, a lot of human uh, dysfunction. And I pray that we would have eyes to see um, those wonderful works today, this morning in this text, um, through uh, Jacob's family. And I pray that you would uh, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us uh, minds to understand, hearts to receive uh, what it is that you have to show us today in your holy word. So I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So th- this isn't the title of the sermon is God's character, but this isn't the only place that you see God's character in this, this story, um, just so you know. But but God's character is kind of put into to more of a sharp view uh, in this part of Jacob's family history, even though it's wrought with uh, just this intra-family jealousies and constant plotting, which we would say for this family, this is sort of par for the course, is what we've come to expect of Jacob and anybody associated with Jacob. But seeing God's character in this part of the story and his sustainment, continued sustainment of the line of promise and the brokenness of this family should give you and I real hope as to God's work in our own lives, in our own brokenness. We can continue to see that he remains faithful to us. So here's a summary of the dysfunction that we have before us in our text this morning. A little preface to what we're about to look at. So you have in chapter 29, verse 16, you have uh, Leah, who is Laban's oldest daughter, uh, is passed over by Jacob because, so it seems, she is not the pretty sister. And then you have in chapter 29, verses 21 through 27, uh, Laban uh, deceiving Jacob secretly and, um, and, and in a kind of a, a covert way, giving Leah in marriage to Jacob when he was expecting Rachel on their wedding night uh, without him knowing it. And so you might say, how in the world would he not know that? Well, there wasn't lights in that day. When it got dark, it was dark, okay? They didn't, couldn't flip anything on. They didn't have iPhone flashlights and things like that. Uh, Leah also would have been in a veil at that, at that time. And there was probably a lot of partying that night. So Jacob was probably under the influence. So all of these things working together, uh, Laban knew, I can deceive this man easily. And so Jacob's deceived by his father-in-law. So... Even in the midst of studying this and looking back over this, this, this incident here, I, had to, I, have, I began to just have a lot of empathy and compassion for Leah. I mean, what a humiliating and shameful situation this was for her. The unwanted, hated Leah was given to a man who doesn't want her. I mean, he was outraged at Laban for giving him Leah. So imagine the, the behind-the-back conversations, the rumors that began to spread after the wedding feast, the looks she got in public as she walked down the streets. And then to add insult to injury, 
after Jacob is raging at Laban, uh, Laban does exactly what he planned to do. And so he gives Rachel to Jacob after, for, for him to serve another seven years. But he, he does this, and, he, and Jacob ends up with the right sister. And it's the sister that he loves. So chapter 29, verse 30 says it all. So Jacob, after he had finished the, the wedding week with Leah, it says, So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. So not a good start. Yet God, in the midst of all of this um, corruption and dysfunction, is fulfilling his promise that he made so long ago to Abraham. Promises during Abraham and Sarah's days that seemed impossible at the time. You had a, a barren wife who had no children at all. An old age that was working against the both of them. And now, all of this is beginning to come to fruition. So Jacob ends up having 12 sons and a daughter. Uh, who, or 12 sons who become the fathers of the tribes of, of Israel. He also has a daughter in this text as well who doesn't get a whole lot of mention until a few chapters later. And it's tragic. But he ends up with the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel from whom millions of Jewish people would come. But this doesn't come with the fanfare that you would think it would come with. Due in part, in my opinion, is, is to Jacob's lack of vision for what God had been doing in his life up to this point. And even now, in our text, it seems that he is more concerned with getting the right woman than what God is doing. So now God is going to work his plan out through the clueless Jacob, a frustrated wife, a bitter wife, and their maidservants. And through it all, we learn who God is in the midst of this. Which is a good way to learn since it's, 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 it tends to be for some life circumstances or uh, world events that we allow to define God for us rather than the scriptures. And so we look at the world or we look at what's going on in our life and we say, well, this must be how God is. So I want to look at three attributes that we learn about God in the continued drama of this family. So one is that God is just. Two is that God is gracious. And three is that God is compassionate. God is just, God is gracious, and God is compassionate. So the first attribute of God that we learn about in this part of the story is that he is just. And justice, when used of God, is, is a name we give to the way God is and nothing more. We don't just say that God does justice. When we say God is just, we mean God is justice. He embodies that. It is his character. It is who he is, which means Everything he does, all of his workings, whether we like what we see or not, is justice. And I would say the greatest example of this is when he sends his only son, Jesus, into the world, bringing justice upon sin that lands on his son's shoulders. And even so, even as, as, we, as we think about that, we still ask the question, how can a just God 
allow the evils that exist in the world to take place. And the gospel is the answer to that. Jesus is the answer to that. Because he paid the ultimate price of justice. So in Deuteronomy 32.4, Moses saying these words, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And so here in these verses, each child's name reveals some sort of truth about God's justice to us in verses in chapter 29 verses 31 through 35 and it's Leah who gives birth to most of these children Leah was according to verse 31 hated she was unloved by Jacob and essentially unloved by her father as well who thought deceit the only way he could marry off his weak-eyed oldest daughter so she was overlooked She was unseen by the men in her life. But she wasn't unseen by God. Look at verse 31. This is an important verse here. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Now, I'm sure a lot of us in this room, probably most of us in this room, have felt the emotion or the feeling of being unseen where you are ignored or neglected. Um, maybe you've felt that from those who were supposed to, to see you. Maybe uh, it's, it's your spouse that you're not being seen by, or your parents, or those friends in your life that you think are friends but really aren't friends. It's painful, isn't it? It's a lot of the reason why we like uh, Facebook likes and Instagram likes and views, because we want to feel seen. And so people will do wild things be seen on social media. But have you ever felt the feeling of being seen? When when someone truly sees you, it's why we have the expression sometimes we say, I felt seen. And and what that means is, 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 is that someone has tapped into something about you that only you really care about, or you think you're the only one that cares about it, or you really know about yourself. So maybe they're giving you some compliment because of something you've done or something that they just recognize in you that's, that to you is very small. And you would say, I felt seen by that person. Well, Leah knows both of these emotions. Here was a, a forgotten woman whom God makes to be extremely fruitful. For, for a woman to be able to give birth during this time, was a sign of God's favor and blessing. And if you could give sons, it was even more so. And that's exactly what was happening with Leah. And with these first four sons in verses 31 through 35, she communicates to us about the justice of God because she is experiencing injustice. But she's ultimately showing us that God blesses the despised and oppressed as he fulfills his purposes. So she gives us four different angles that we can view God's justice here. The first angle is that she gives that she gives to us concerning God's justice is in the naming of her first son Reuben, which means the Lord sees affliction. Specifically, Leah is referring to her own affliction of not being loved by her husband, but it does remind us that God is concerned for you as an individual. 
I know a lot of we are in corporate worship right now, so we are worshiping together in a community corporately. And so sometimes it can feel like God is only concerned about what we do corporately as a group, but God cares about and sees you as an individual in all of your intricacies, in all of your dysfunction, in all of your joys. God sees you. His eyes are always on you. You are his creation. Elsewhere in the scriptures, it says that as believers, we are the apple of God's eye. He sees you. And so the idea of God's justice here is that uh, it sees Leah's affliction for what it truly is. It's an inequity. It's the absence of equality from human thoughts and actions that are taking place in her life. She is not being treated fairly. She had every right to say, this is not fair that my husband doesn't love me as much as he loves my sister. And so she was ex- uh, clearly experiencing this from Jacob. She is afflicted, yet God is with her in the affliction, and she knows it. That's what God justice means, is that he is with the afflicted. So that's the first angle. She, th- th- he sees the afflicted. The second angle Leah gives us concerning God's justice is the naming of her second son, Simeon, which means the Lord hears. So the Lord sees and the Lord hears. So listening is one of the best qualities I think you could ask for in anyone in your life. Yet, yet even though it's a quality that we desire, it's often the most neglected thing that we do. I mean, how many times have you asked a parent or a spouse or a friend, while you're talking to them, maybe you're sharing something deep and intimate and important, and you look at them and they're probably staring at their phone, and you say, are you listening to me? The author Ernest Hemingway said, when people talk, listen completely. I love that. When people talk, listen completely. We value that in any relationship because we want someone to truly hear us. So Leah is essentially pushed off by her father into a lonely marriage. Into a a marriage to a man who doesn't see her and doesn't hear her. He's really only doing when he lays with Leah. Sorry, this is a PG-13 message. But when he lays with Leah, he is, uh, he's just doing his duty. It's not really love. And so with the naming of her second son, the Lord hears. She's not only reminding herself every time she calls out his name that the Lord hears her, she is teaching us that God's ear is not closed to those who cry out to him. You see, Leah's misery did not drive her away from God, but it drove her towards him. As David says in Psalm 2710 that Miranda read for us earlier, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. The the two people that should love me and hear me and see me most, my father and my mother, they've forsaken me, David says. But the Lord has not. And he never will. So Leah could have easily reframed those words, this prayer with, though my husband neglects me, 
Though he loves Rachel and only mildly tolerates me, yet the Lord will take me in. So maybe this describes your posture this morning. Maybe you're frustrated. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe you are having feelings of misery and depression and darkness. And so I hope it's, it's, it's doing what Leah's experience led her to do. Depend on the Lord. Depend on the Lord by remembering that He is the better Father. Depend on the Lord remembering that He is the faithful and attentive husband to His bride. Always. The third angle concerning God's justice is the naming of her third son, Levi. We have a Levi here. Which means hope for attachment. So at the birth of each of these first three sons, Leah is still hoping that it would draw her husband close to her. She still has this valid human desire to be connected intimately and lovingly with this man that she is married to. But as far as we can tell, he does not. He is not drawn closer to her. Which then leads her to name her fourth son, Judah. Which means, this time I will praise the Lord. So you see, Leah's motive has changed from trying to please her husband to praising the Lord. And this is an important lesson we learn from Leah, even if we aren't feeling the same feelings that she has currently, because no longer is Leah trying to find her identity in her husband or finding her identity as a mother, but now she is trying to find her identity as a worshiper of God. So it's important to note that in the naming of these first four sons, Leah uses the covenant name of God in connection to these births. So you could use just a kind of a generic name of God, or you could use this name of God that, was, that meant that you were seeking to be in covenant with God. And that's what Leah was doing in the naming of these sons. So Leah was not merely stating a fact about God, but she was stating that she was being drawn to the God of Abraham and Isaac, even in her misery, even in her suffering. She knows that God will not only act justly toward her, but that God is actually just. So God is just. The second attribute we learn in our text is that God is gracious in, verses, in chapter 30, verses 1 through 13. Now, like I said earlier, the presence of God's grace is all over the story of Jacob. It's not just showing up here. But even in their faulty human efforts, God is still doing this massive work of grace amongst them. He has not stopped pouring out his grace and mercy upon them. So apparently Leah, at this point in the story, is now unable to have children of her own anymore. And Rachel, her younger sister, still remains barren. She can't have a child. She has not had a child yet. So in verses 1 through 13... Both women used the same custom Sarah used when she gave her servant Hagar to Abraham. Another kind of repeated mistake here we're seeing. So if you remember, Sarah was unable to have children. She, they, they believed that, that, the, that the, the, the covenant child would, would come from Abraham, but they weren't sure how it was going to happen because they were getting older. And so she, get, she says, here, take my servant and have a son um, through her for me. And this is what... 
Rachel and Leah do as well with Jacob. They give their maidservants to him for the sole purpose of having children. So the main thing that we learn here in these 13 verses in chapter 30 is that these two sisters have a bitter rivalry going. It's a common theme we see in Genesis, this, this rivalry between, um, between siblings, and this is happening between Rachel and Leah. And so they are sort of in competition with each other. Who can have the most kids? Kind of a strange competition, but who can have the most kids? Who is going to be the most worthy? Who is, who is, there, who is going to win the affections of their husband? And so while this isn't an appropriate or ideal way in which to do this, uh, it, because it shows this, this great lack of trust in God's provision, God, nevertheless, does work through these means. As he continues to raise up through Zilpah and Bilhah, sons who would, along with those sons of Jacob and Rachel, become the fathers of the greatest Jewish tribes. So this is a clear work of God's grace in this family. Nothing they've done thus far ever encourages God in this direction. I would say if God was playing that game with us, it would be going backwards, not forwards. There would be no progress if it was up to us. It has been his sovereign plan all along. So looking at the names of these four boys that are born to Zilpah and Bilhah, you can see uh, what's going on in the hearts of Rachel and Leah here. Uh, Dan, the firstborn to Rachel's servant, means God has judged me and has also heard my voice. A short name, but a long definition. So Rachel sees her barrenness as God's judgment upon her, even though nothing in the text indicates that she is actually being judged by God. There's nothing in the text that says that because you're not having children, you are being judged by God. And so she names uh, uh, Naphtali, is the name of the second-born son to Rachel's servant, and she names him this. With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and prevailed. So now we're getting at the heart of the matter here. Rachel sort of exposes and confesses what actually is going on inside of her, of her heart. Rachel is in competition with her older sister. Rachel is bitter. Rachel is jealous of her because she's been able to have so many children and bless her family in this way. And then when Leah's son, born to her servant, she names the first son Gad, which means good fortune has come. And then the second son, she names Asher, which means, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So nothing wrong with being happy in this situation. She has many children. That's always a reason to rejoice, no matter the circumstances when a baby is born. But it's the focus that is troubling. Leah fighting for recognition from her husband, from her sister, and even the world. The world will look at me and call me blessed. The world will no longer talk about uh, my, my poor marriage and this, this uh, humiliating situation that my father had to do to get me a husband. Now they will call me happy. And then you have Rachel who is just bitter and angry and in competition with her older sister. But even in the midst of this sibling rivalry, God's grace prevails. 
James Boyce says, Leah's was a bad situation which God did not completely change. But God changed Leah. He gave her grace to live in a less than perfect situation. So not only does God multiply Leah's joy in childbirth, allowing her to give birth to the fathers of the greatest Jewish tribes, as we mentioned earlier, but within those fathers is Levi, who was the father of the priest of Israel, the priest of God's people. And then what's more, she also gave birth to Judah, who was the father of the tribe from whom the Messiah comes. So I hope you can see how significant this is. The Lord Jesus Christ, the the snake crusher, the, the promised one who was promised way long ago back in Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and Eve, the promised one was not born of the line that comes from the beautiful and loved Rachel. He came from Leah, from the unwanted, the unloved, the outcast, the person nobody wanted to set their eyes on. The Messiah came from her. And you see, this is, this is the gospel pattern. This is what it looks like. Throughout the Bible, if you were to do a, a biblical theology study on, on, on this particular in, in, incident, you would see this marked throughout the Bible every single time. God using the lowly and despised to bring about his good purposes. It's something Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29. He says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, and this is why, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So what Paul is saying there is, I don't care what degree you have, what job you do, how smart you think you are, how beautiful you think you are, how popular you are. Paul says God chooses the foolish to shame the wise. God chooses the weak to shame the strong. It's it's redemptive reversal at its finest. Jesus himself fits this pattern. In Isaiah chapter 53, it's a very familiar uh, passage uh, in the Old Testament where Jesus is described like this. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So what that says, humanly speaking, is that if Jesus was among us now, we would neglect him because of what he looked like. We would not be drawn to him because of his appearance or what clothes he was wearing or uh, how popular he was. He'd be sitting in the back, probably next to the trash can, and ignored. And so what that tells us is Jesus identifies with us because in the eyes of God, we are unlovely to look at. 
We are lost and trapped in our sin and in darkness, and it is ugly. So even in Leah's desperation to outdo her beautiful sister, God is saying to her, you don't need to do this. I'm all you need. And so once more, God shows us in the family history of his son that his grace overturns all human conventions. He chooses who he chooses, and he loves who he loves. And so the third attribute that we see in our text is that God is compassionate. In uh, chapter 30, verses 14 through 24. Now, admittedly, I'm going to read these verses again for us. Uh, verses 14 through 18 are, uh, they're weird. It's a weird, it's a weird little section. Let's just be honest. It is weird. Um, and I'm going to read, these, read this for us just so we can get it into our mind again uh, at how weird this is. Verse 14, in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Now, um, this, is, this is, you could say, next level sibling rivalry. Um, but it's not an unfamiliar one, is it? Jacob and Esau had a similar interaction with his birthright, and we saw how that ended, where he was cheated out of it. And so in these verses, Leah's son Reuben is out harvesting, and he comes upon mandrakes. Now, these are not the Harry Potter mandrakes, because I'm sure if you've read those, that's where you go to. Uh, these mandrakes were superstitiously believed to be something that could help with fertility. You could say they were kind of early, an early form of essential oils or something like that, or uh, junk science at best. I'm just kidding for all you essential oil folks. Calm down. See the rage in your eyes. But of course we know, because it is a superstitious belief, Rachel has no children of her own, and she is desperate even to try something that is at best an old wives' tale. And so she trades Leah a night with Jacob for them, which was a big deal. And so what's interesting is, is that what's noted here by Moses is not Rachel getting pregnant. I mean, she thinks the mandrakes are going to help her. But it's Leah who gets pregnant again. And not once does she get pregnant, but she gives, uh, gives birth to a son and a daughter. She gets pregnant twice by Jacob in this part of the story. And even in the birth of her sixth son, we still see that Leah is longing for her husband's affection by naming him Zebulun, which means, now my husband will love me. Now my husband will love me. And to our knowledge, he never really does. And, and, and you, you sort of get this when you, later when we'll get into to the story of Joseph. Um, you see that because it, it's, Joseph, it's the, the children that are born of Rachel that Joseph favors. 
or that, that, that Jacob favors. He, he favors Joseph, and we know how that ends. And then later he favors Benjamin because they are the sons of his favorite wife. So Rachel had the looks. Rachel had the immediate affection of her husband. Even before they were married, Jacob was already uh, kissing her. Jacob gives 14 years of service to win Rachel's hand in marriage, and it was all counted to him as joy, and yet she was barren. She has no children yet. Even with the use of other means, she has zero children. So in that day, to give birth to children was highly regarded, and failure to do so was seen as a sign of God's disfavor, which was not altogether true. But because of this, Rachel knows that there is a real possibility that she could lose her husband's affection. That she could become the hated wife. Because your looks can only carry you so far. And all of this combined, we see that it's, it's starting to drive her mad. If you look back at chapter 30, verse 1, she says to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. To which Jacob responds, in anger, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? I mean, that was a blow. That was a stab to the heart. He was saying, I have not done this to you. God has done this. God has cursed you by not giving you children. But at the same time, in Jacob's question, he does rightly frame how all involved need to see the situation at hand. And I've said it many times before, and I'll say it again, that it's the Lord's work in the Lord's way. No, Jacob is not in the place of God. Nor is Rachel, nor is Leah, nor are you or me or anyone else in your life. None of them are in the place of God. It is all of God in everything that we do. And I think too, this is when I and not this is one of my pet peeves when people say um, it was a God thing or it was a God moment or something like that. And I understand what people are saying when they say that. So if you if you say that, continue to say that, just not around me. Okay. Um, but I also want to stop you and say, no, every moment is a God thing. Every moment is a God moment. Even if it's the most minute detail of your life, it is a God is at work in that. He is not absent from it. So in keeping with this theme, look at verse look at the two verses that that book in sort of book in our passage today. So you have chapter 30, 29 verse 31. And then you have chapter 30 verse 22. So 29:31 says, "When the Lord saw Leah was hated, he opened her womb." And then chapter 30 verse 22 Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, and he opened her womb. God opened the wombs of both of these women. He looked on both of them with compassion. Because what God is doing with both of them, and with Jacob, and with the the maidservants, is that he is raising up a people for himself. He is fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham that his offspring would outnumber the stars. And here are the beginnings of that. 
God using imperfect people to bring about his good and perfect plan to bring about his prince, our King Jesus. So Sally Lloyd-Jones, and if you don't have the Jesus Storybook Bible, even if you don't have kids, I'd encourage you to get it because she just paints this picture of, of Jesus in the midst of all of the stories of the scriptures. And she does this in uh, the story of Rachel and Leah. She says this in the Jesus Storybook Bible. We'll close with this. The prince, Jesus, would love God's people. They wouldn't need to be beautiful for, for him to love them. He would love them with all of his heart. And like Leah, they would be beautiful because he loved them. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for being a God who makes his people beautiful. Thank you for being a God who is just and gracious and compassionate towards us. We don't deserve it. Thank you that you pour out all of this on us despite our own brokenness and sin and our repeated sin. It's you who has done this for us in your son Jesus, your prince, our king. So help us to live in light of the truth and reality of the gospel, uh, not just today, but day by day and moment by moment, that we would recognize that it is you that is, work, that is at work in our lives and every part of it. And we pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.